Welcome to the Transform Your Workplace podcast. I've got Anna Miners here with me. She's from Cascade Centers. Anna, good to have you in the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. And I've got her here in person. We're going to talk about a book, Dying for a Paycheck, How Modern Management Harms Employee Health and Company Performance and What We Can Do About It. You read this book. I did. What did you think? Thanks for having me. Um, I think that this book does a good job of highlighting sort of the systemic impact of the workplace on employee health. So I think with employee health and well-being, a lot of times people really focus on like the individual attribution and sort of what we can do personally to take care of ourselves and be healthier. And so many workplace wellness programs focus on that, but don't recognize how much the system or the context in which we Mm -hmm. exist impacts people's well-being. So I thought it did a nice job of sort of highlighting that in a way that was easily digestible. In the intro, there's a there's a quote I loved. It said, leaders should ensure at the end of the day, their employees return home in good shape, prepared to live fulfilled lives outside of work. To me, that was like, it set the stage for the entire book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think, I don't know if employers are really focused on that to make sure that their employees are not burned out by the time they get home. Right. They're not thinking about work necessarily when they get home. There's there's such a bleed over into to the personal lives mm-hmm. and their personal lives are they're, they're stressed out. They're bringing it back to work. And it's just like this vicious cycle. Sort of the interrelated nature yeah. of it all. And I think, you know, a lot of workplace wellness programs, not all. I mean, definitely there are some employers that are really focused on the well-being of their people as whole people. Yeah. Um, but a lot of employers are really focused on health and wellness from a cost containment standpoint. Yeah, I believe that. Um, and that's a big driver for them. And so there has to be both, right? That it, you know, it is a big <laughs> expensive issue and people are people and to care for people as whole people. I, I think it's interesting. Like we're, I think employers are thinking about it a lot mm-hmm. more. This book sheds a lot of light on the fact that if if people are unhealthy, it actually drives up a lot of costs. Mm-hmm. The productivity goes down. Like there's a there's so much right. data in inside this book. So like be prepared yeah. if, you, if you plan to read it. But I know some of it is a little intimidating it with is. the statistical analysis and yeah. the methodology of all the research. <laughs> I'm like, well, it's funny. Like I open up the book. I'm like, oh gosh, like 300 pages. Oh wait, no, 100 pages of it is like notes, citations. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, great. it's a little intimidating. All the research. But. I know. Do you think? employer decisions in the workplace actually affects human health. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I think, you know, think about how much time we spend at work Mm -hmm. and how invested people are in their sense of self and then also just sort of like necessity, right? You need your job for your economic security. So. Definitely. The things that happen in the workplace, the decisions that are made impact people's well-being. And I think that's kind of the whole crux of his position is that employers need to be more mindful about how their decisions are impacting people. And it's not just a exercise more situation. Yeah. yeah. There, I actually screenshotted this and I'm looking at it right now. So page 43 of this book, it... it to my last question of you, employer decisions that affect health, there's like a list of 10 things. Oh, yeah. And I wouldn't even have thought about some of these things, but like not having health insurance, uh, shifts that you're working, 
long hours, job insecurity. There, there. I mean, the list goes on, but it's like all these like little things that employers actually affect in one way or mm-hmm. another affects health at the end of the day, right? Whether it's their their stress on the job or they bring it home and then they have like family conflict or right. whatever. Yeah. That's, I never would have thought about that. Yeah. I mean, you probably deal with this all the time in the line of work that you're doing. Right. Yeah. So some of those things to me, it's like research is putting words to psychology is good at yeah. proving something. They're like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> you know, Why didn't we recognize that? Mm-hmm. But definitely putting words to and data to how much those things, you know, like the the working long hours, shift work, those kinds of things that that really does impact people's health. And, you know, you can have the best self-care in the world, but if you have rotating shifts and you get off work at 11 p.m. and you're back at work at 7 a.m. the next day, you know, that's, to me, like, obviously, you know, that's going (laughs) to impact somebody's well-being. I recognize certain industries are more challenged with how to manage that, but but how much that really does impact people's well-being and access to care and impact in their families and all those kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, you, you brought up a good point there, like with certain industries. It's like, how do you get around, you know, the the shifts that are, they, they work long. Mm-hmm. Like I've worked in a union job before right. where in yeah. college where I'm like, you know, I'd work till 9 p.m. and then I'd be back at 6 a.m. or something right. like that. I mean, yeah. those are crazy. Uh, the money's good, but... At the end of the day, like your health is taking a toll. Like how do you even avoid that in certain industries? Well, I think there's two parts of that. One is the industry piece, but then kind of to your point, the money is good. So I think people do get in a position where they're trading their health and well-being for, you know, out of necessity. They need the job. They need the money. And it depends on the industry, but some um, jobs – you know, people don't feel like they have a lot of other choices. You sort of get, um, can't remember the term, but like in the construction industry, there's um, data on how people feel like they won't be able to find that level of pay, you know, somewhere else with the yeah. training and experience and education that they have. So they kind of get stuck, like yeah. gridlocked in a job. So you don't feel like you have any other options. That's unbelievable to me. But as an employer, and then definitely certain industries, I mean, the construction industry is a good example you know, there's high volume of work at this time of year and you have to get the job done and the days are longer <laughs> and right. And then you're not doing as much in November, rainy November. But I think the book highlights that it kind of has to start from like a policy standpoint yeah. or sort of a larger structure standpoint and then filter down through employer decisions. Yeah. And there are, so we're you know, here in Oregon, I actually was just looking this up the other day because this sparked interest for me. <laughs> so, you know, like what yeah. are, and there are guidelines, uh, laws in Oregon around how um, far in advance people need access to their mm-hmm. schedules. So not scheduling people sooner than seven days out or, and what I mean by that is one of the big problems with work family rub or conflict is that if people are trying to plan child care, their caregiving responsibilities, and they don't know what their work schedule is going to be like next week, 
that's really hard to do. And so currently the law is seven days. It's going to change in July, actually, this oh, really? year. Yeah, to, Didn't even know that. To two, yeah, to two weeks, 14 days notice for people's shifts to change. So I recognize that it puts a pull. And some of these topics can be kind of political, right? Because there's varying interests. So that puts a pull on employers, but it does help employees as far as their individual yeah well-being and their family well-being um so anyways all that to say i think it does have to start from like a policy uh, standpoint or sort of a systemic structural standpoint and then move down through employers because there will be employers that will say we're making this decision because we think it's in the best interest of our employees and this is what we're doing but that's not going to be all employers yeah and when you say policy you mean like at the government level right and then filter that so like i always think of Hey, here's an opportunity for yeah. employers to just adopt a best practice right. or to, because it's the right thing to do. It's in the best interest of the employees. And at the end of the day, like, right. it's going, they're going to be more productive, healthier at work. Their minds are right. Like mm-hmm. I would think it's in their best interest as well. But I, I do, I do realize there's an opportunity for a lot of employers to adopt some of these these ideas in in this book uh-huh. and and do right by their employees so that they're they're happier they're healthier right. they're doing better work what yeah i mean i'm biased for sure because <laughs> i course. am interested in employee health and well-being but i also recognize that there's two sides to every story yeah. Yeah. and i really am not well educated about how you know economics you know Econ 201 is pretty much the (laughs) (laughs) maximum level I went on that. You know, like I know that when you're talking about changing the way shifts happen, giving people more rest time, then you might have to hire more people. Well, then that obviously has an impact on operations and overhead and then so on and so forth. So I don't think that there's ever really like a perfect scenario but there's got to be some kind of balance Mm -hmm. between the two. So again, I mean, I... And bias towards, yeah, it makes sense. People are healthier and more productive. And I think that's the argument of the of the book is that these decisions do impact companies in a positive way in their bottom line, but it's not without challenges. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard to get there. Mm-hmm. And there's sometimes limited motivation to do anything that way. This book really highlights the negative impacts of employer decisions i I mean i feel like the majority of the book really talks about that it is is a bit of a downer the the title (laughs) is literally dying for a paycheck like in different chapters they talk about certain things one in particular they talk about how layoffs are Mm -hmm. are um, really impactful to not only just employees the culture of the work or the business or organization but also like societal like there's impacts at the society level Mm -hmm. too Talk about that. Like, what, what did you kind of get from that, yeah. that section? You know, that was interesting to me because I think that we do often think about these situations in like microcosms. Yeah. So how does it impact um, these specific employees <laughs> yeah. or this specific company or maybe even this industry, but then the broader sort of societal costs of absorbing and that's not even the personal impact, right? But the just from a cost standpoint, absorbing people that don't have jobs and people that don't have health insurance and the long-term impact of that. One thing that he said in the book I thought was interesting was around delaying care. If you have a gap in employment or health insurance, that even if you 
are re you know, get a job somewhere else mm-hmm. relatively quickly, that you still delay your access to care because yeah. there's that gap in your income. And, Absolutely. And healthcare is so expensive for people. So that was kind of an interesting standpoint because I think a lot of times we're considering just individuals at that organization, yeah. you know, and then that's nothing to say of obviously like the huge emotional blow to people and their families and then people that remain at the organization. Th- um, that was the part that I thought was yeah. a little scary. I mean, you probably remember back in 2008, 2009 mm-hmm. timeframe where I'm sure at some point you had somebody in your family or a friend mm-hmm. or somebody who's laid off. Mm-hmm. And in the, in the back of your mind, you're like, okay, well, I still have my job, uh, but I could go at any moment. Like, I think that yeah. for people remaining in the organization, that's what probably goes through their head is yeah. like, oh my gosh, so-and-so just got laid off or a, a bunch of people just got yeah. laid off. I'm next. You know, that, that insecurity. Yeah. I think that that's influenced a generation, honestly. It has. In my like observations and talking with people is that not only is it if that happened at your company, but if that happened to someone you know, or my, I was just early in my career at that point, but a lot of my friends and colleagues, people I know that are in that same generation, that's sort of their mindset is like, nothing's for sure. Exactly. And a lot of people have, he talks about like the gig economy, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people do have like side gigs, you know, everyone's selling (laughs) like lipstick or whatever. It's like the Mary Kay. (laughs) Mary Kay. Mary Kay. It's expanded into industries now. I feel like everybody kind of has a backup plan. And some of that, some of that is And I don't know. I mean, this is just my personal observation. And I don't know how much that's true for people that are later in their careers. But it does seem like people, millennials and people that are younger Gen X folks, they Mm -hmm. kind of are like, nothing's for sure. I have a backup plan. I appreciate what I've got. But I'm always kind of looking. And we see that shift in that movement in the workplace anyways that people don't stay. And I'm wondering, like, how much of that is because of that sort of... Oh, I I believe it. You know? Like, nothing's for sure. You're just saying that that you you basically started uh, in your professional career right right around that time. Same same here. Like, I was basically right out of college. Started at Zenium here in 2008. I just remember, like, you know, we were stable here, but the employers that we were helping like mm-hmm. layoffs and I mean yeah. people and family and friends and just nothing was nothing was for sure yeah. and so you always got to ba- have a backup plan and uh, that's I think to this day that's still why I do a little bit of side work yeah, right I do yeah. think I mean again that's just my opinion there's no like <laughs> <laughs> no data behind yeah there's that. nothing behind it it's just an observation it's, but... it's hard I think it's hard to how do you do a study for something like that? I mean, like it's because yeah. it's just, it's in the back of our minds for the most part. Like sometimes it's like, it's not even a conscious decision. It's like, Oh yeah. Like I enjoy doing some side work. So, right. but it's like, I guess to somebody else it might look like a backup plan, but it's for me, it's just like, I enjoy it. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know. I mean, that was kind of what was interesting. Another thing that was interesting to me in this book that we're talking about is, uh, some of the studies that they were able to yeah. do longitudinal studies that span decades is always really fascinating mm-hmm. to me like how do you how do you even keep people engaged yeah. and find data over that period of time but yeah that insecurity piece is i think it's really pervasive and it it's not back to your kind of question it doesn't just impact the person or their company i think it is a broader sort of societal uh, everybody's a little bit concerned 
Hey, Brandon here to take a quick break to talk about the annual What People Want From Work survey presented by Zenium HR. The survey offers a look into your workplace through your employees' eyes. We're going to reveal what's working, what needs improvement, and what your employees want from the workplace. We're going to cover areas like leadership, workplace culture, management support, rewards and recognition, work environment, and so much more. It's a mix of qualitative and quantitative data. The deadline to register July 31st, 2019, and the survey will be open until August 31st, 2019. You'll get a free report in the end to tell you all about what your people want from work. You'll get your scores and a nice PDF report. If you want to participate, go to zeniumhr.com forward slash survey, and you can sign up right away. Now back to the show. They spend some time talking about health insurance Mm -hmm. and how the lack of coverage or no coverage at all really mm-hmm. impacts the well-being of people. This is a like a huge societal issue right now. And such a political hot it's topic. It's such a political hot yeah. topic. We could honestly spend an entire podcast talking about this and, and never solve anything. Yeah. Um, Gosh, if we could solve something. Well, if we could solve something, <laughs> seriously. Because I think there's a lot of people out there that they... They believe it's it's a it's a right, the mm-hmm. universal health care right. should be provided because we're you know uh, a wealthy economy. Politics aside, what do you think the implications of like not having health insurance and any sort of access to 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 care? Like, what does that do to a person? I mean, that's essentially his whole chapter, yeah. right, on health insurance. But I'm sure you hear and see stories too. I mean, just this week. What is today? Tuesday? Today's okay, Tuesday. so yesterday, <laughs> yeah. someone was talking to me about needing, and the, I think the issue is that a lot of people have health health insurance, but yeah. they have a really high deductible. Absolutely. So like, or they, high then they're, they're spending so, they're, so much money out of pocket mm-hmm, before they even. So get they're it. delaying access to care. They're waiting until it's critical and so in my work you know Mm. in the mental health field people will have symptoms and disruption for a long time before they seek care because they're like i can't afford my three thousand or five thousand dollar deductible i mean part of what a big stressor for people uh, i think he talks about the two biggest stressors for people are work and um, money right so if you're really (laughs) if you're really stressed out at work and you're really worried about money am i gonna go and spend x amount to get counseling like that just makes my problem worse right like five thousand dollars deductible so just yesterday i was talking to somebody that need needs medication but can't afford it and so they just don't take it to me like there there's um i like i get the whole point of insurance like i think it should be used for catastrophic Mm -hmm. stuff but then there's this huge gap of like preventative. And mm-hmm. I think it's what we're describing is like the the regular stuff to prevent some of these like really bad you know diseases or health issues that could have been solved upstream. But like to get care initially is like people are waiting and it's not in their best interest to do that. I think there's a huge gap. And that's, I think, why employers are... Right getting into this this wellness program thing their eap yeah. for example like yeah. their their employers are starting to 
to provide some resources, but I think overall we just have a huge flaw in our, the way yeah. the system is he built. He talks about that in the book too, the employers that are offering, you know, think about the employers that are really well known for offering great benefits. Yeah. So people go work there. Maybe they're okay, excited about the job, but mostly they're excited about the benefits. You think so? Yes. <laughs> it, it says in the book, right? Yes, but I see that. I mean, and yeah. also people that are pretty miserable in their job, don't really like their job or aren't feeling like it's fulfilling to them, don't like their coworker, whatever mm-hmm. it is. They're unhappy in their job, but they stay there because they need the benefits. That's or their family needs the benefits, yeah. right? So they get locked into a position. And I hear people say that mm-hmm. a lot. I also think like something he talks about just a little bit, but um, back to your point about preventative care is some people, uh, you know, if we had access to preventative care, it's a back to dependence and eligibility for insurance and all that. So some of the things that people could have received preventative care services for and some kind of early intervention They don't because they can't afford it and then it compounds and then they're workers and Mm -hmm. then, you know, and so, yeah, to get upstream. I don't have the answer. I don't know. I just thought it was a really interesting observation he made and I see it and I hear people talk about those things that they do feel stuck in their positions. Again, we talked about pay, but health insurance i think people even with people with health insurance to your point it's like okay what what good is it doing because i'm just waiting for the time where like you know my kid breaks his leg or Mm. could happen like at the individual level there's deductibles and like that was your point like high deductible okay broken leg emergency room visit uh paying out of pocket before you even get in any care like that's for people who don't save Oh, most yeah. people don't save. Oh, well, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. yeah, I mean, back to the biggest worry being work and or biggest yeah. stress being work and finances. I mean, most people can't afford an unexpected expense exactly. like that. Yeah, so I think the solution is employers should just pay for everything, right? like 100% <laughs> out of pocket. Right? Yeah. Uh, no, employees but so then the other part of <laughs> it is employers like, okay, so think about being one of those employers that we were just talking about that offers great benefits. And he talks about this in the book. Then people that are attracted to that yeah. flock, he calls it flock there mm-hmm. because they want their benefits. Well, what kind of position is that to be in as an employer, right? Like, Yeah, providing everything. Yeah, because yeah, then that's really expensive to them. And yeah. are they getting maybe the best quality candidates? Are they getting the candidates that are... Maybe not. Maybe. I don't know. Sicker. I don't know. Like, I really don't know. But it's an interesting conversation that or conversation, but like point he has yeah. in that book. Yeah, I don't know the answer. I think we're not going to obviously solve anything, but it is a good <laughs> it is a good point to make. There was um, later on it talked about the health impacts of like working really long hours, and I thought mm-hmm. this was an interesting point because I think with today's world of like technology and s- especially for the information worker, like the yep. the white collar worker, so to speak, like you're always connected. And so like the working long hours back in the day usually meant like working in a factory for 12 hours at a time. 
now it, it means something totally different. Mm-hmm. You're always connected. You're always expected to be on. Like talk, talk about that. Mm-hmm. And what, what do you think about that oh, entire man. piece? Yeah, that's it, really probably what you're dealing with a lot in your work. Really fascinating to me. I'm going to side go on a side trajectory for a second, <laughs> come back do. to this. But at PSU and OHSU in their organizational um, behavior programs. And at OHSU, they have a National Institute of Occupational Health Sciences Research Center. So they're doing all this research on this. And conflict, work-family conflict, and how some people prefer to have a really strong separation, right? Like when I'm done with work, I'm done with work, and then I want to be with my family, Or some people really feel like that gives them a benefit to have that ability Mm -hmm. to integrate, right? Like I can be at soccer practice, but also still responding to email. And in the olden days, right, back before we had tech in our hands, um, you wouldn't necessarily be able to be at soccer practice. You'd have to be wherever you were. So people have different preferences, I guess, as far as how they use work technology to integrate into their life and how that benefits them. But the other sort of interesting thing is across all all populations, all working populations, is just like you said, the constant being turned on. Like, and maybe you're not even working, but you're just on your device. Yeah, exactly. Um, and what that's doing to your brain and yeah. Your Have health. you? What is that? There's a researcher. He's a psychologist. Adam Alter, I think, is his name. He's like a. It was a popular TED talk a couple of years ago. Okay. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah. A little so bit. he talks about sort of like how our day is broken up, and a portion of our day is work, obviously. A portion of our day is sleep. A portion of our day is survival. He calls it. Uh, so like like self care. Eating. Kind of, oh, okay. <laughs> like uh, eating, showering. Yeah. And then a portion of our day is what he calls like our personal time where we most of us get our sense of purpose and fulfillment mm. so like what fuels our passions and if you're lucky you get that at work too but the interaction with your hobbies and your friends okay. and your passions and stuff right so it's like the slice of your day and in 2000 and what year did the iphone come out 2007 uh, that was 2000 I thought it was like two, yeah, 2007, okay. something like that. So we'll that. just say 2007 yeah. for this purpose. Probably horribly messing up his TED. Just listen to the TED Talk. But, yeah, we'll put a so, link up to yeah, it. Yeah, so he has this slice of the day that most people get this personal fulfillment time. And in 2007, that slice was like a pretty significant chunk. And now that slice is like this tiny little sliver because all of that is taken up with tech. Yeah, being on your phone, right? And, like yeah. looking at Twitter or being, Unreal. or just scrolling like constantly. You're not oh, even yeah. really doing oh, anything. Yeah, totally. You're just spacing out, looking at your phone, right? So I wow, think that's scary. really interesting. Is like not only that work piece that you're talking about, that constantly being on, but then also how much we're like wired now mm-hmm. and how what it does to our brain and our ability to disconnect and sleep and. Um, I talk about it a lot when I'm doing trainings and things about like um, resilience and that ability to recharge and refuel is that people don't ever have that downtime to be able to like bounce back stronger. You know, you have to be really intentional. It's a really big issue. In fact, there's a quote I actually I wrote down and um, I actually shared with a coworker too. I just I thought that this is a it's something I think about, but it's also just a cultural issue. I think we have a societal issue. Um, So the quote is. Busy is now cool. Oh, it's yeah. even become an aspirational bit of American culture. The higher up you go, the busier your calendar gets. References to crazy schedules, 
in holiday cards have shot up since ni- the 1960s. When Americans hear busy, they think status. Yes. Displays of busyness shows that society values you, that everybody wants a piece, end quote. That really resonated wow. with me Powerful. too. Right? It's true. Okay. I know you've thought about this. Like when you're, let's say you're at a, an event, mm-hmm. a family event, a bunch of people hanging out. Somebody's pulling out their phone. They're on, they're on the phone with somebody. They're they're emailing. Part of you thinks, wow, they must be important, right? Yeah. Exactly. I think this is caught on. Uh, it's a cultural issue right yeah. now. I don't know how to fix it because obviously tech is so involved uh, in our lives right now. Um, I think the busyness thing is it's a... It's like a status it's, it symbol. Is, it is crazy how we believe yeah. that busyness is status mm-hmm. crazy the culture of busy yeah. what do yeah. you think about all that i that really resonated with me too i've been reading Brene brown just like yeah, everybody else in her. the world yeah, right yeah, yeah. um <laughs> you and, watch her netflix special yes, too <laughs> of, course yeah, you of course you did of course i did yeah <laughs> of course i did uh, but she talks a little bit about that in one of her earlier books i think it's in her the gifts of imperfection book but being willing to let go and go against the grain. Like you will not be the normal one at the table or you will not be the normal one at your workplace if you make a conscious choice to disconnect and sort of being okay with that unpopular decision for your own well-being. But it is pervasive. Mm -hmm. I mean, and like to your point, it's shifting. The culture has shifted big time. It's not just, I know millennials get a bad rap. It is not just millennials. Like, the family gathering, like grandma and grandpa are on there, you know, oh, yes. <laughs> cruising <laughs> like, on social oh, media. Oh, hey, they yeah. must be smart. Yeah, like, they're, 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 they're like up every, to something. I know. Everybody's connected all the time, and it it's hard for people to turn off and what that's doing for our well-being. And yeah. then the pressures of work, I mean, people respond all yeah. the time. And some companies, you're expected to respond all the time. Exactly. I don't think that's healthy. It's not healthy. Um, yeah. You know, admittedly, you know, I feel like I'm always connected. Um, I enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, like, how do, how are you all in to whatever you're doing if you if you're always connected? I think that's that's the right. question I always have is like, are you like fully present? Yeah. I was together with some friends this weekend, and we had a big gathering. And it's been a long time since we all were together. And I had my phone away. I, I didn't have it near me. I had yeah. it in uh, like a bag or something. Mm-hmm. And, and that was that was, it was a good feeling. So like at work, you walk into a meeting, don't even bring your phone. Right. Don't bring a device. Yeah. Be all in to that meeting. Which ins- And then I think he talks about this in the book, but I might be remembering it from something else that I've read. But um, that sort of psychological agreement we make with ourselves about being needed. And so... Mm-hmm. You might think I need, and some jobs, absolutely, you are needed, right? You're on call or whatever. But, you know, if you're in a meeting and you have your phone, somebody might need you, right? That's that, true. And that feels pretty yeah. fulfilling in some ways that I'm needed. And so I never can be disconnected because I have to be accessible to my job or my yeah. client or whatever right i get but if you're always anticipating like an emergency like oh somebody's gonna need mm-hmm. me then so for every ding that you get on your phone you're gonna be looking at it like well, during people a do i know it's but it's wild yeah. to me 
Like, I mean, how often do emergencies really happen? It depends on your line of work. I guess that's true. <laughs> yes. But um, kind of back to that status symbol thing. I mean, if you are managing a really big team, mm-hmm. potentially people on, but it's, the... How disrespectful is that to other people, though? Like, yeah. I think it has a it's a it has a bigger impact. Like, yeah, yeah, okay, if an emergency happens and you're ne- you're accessible, you're solving that one emergency. Yeah. But I worry about like the bigger implications. Yeah. Other people watching, they catch on. They're like, okay, well, this is a status symbol. Uh, this person's important because they're always paying attention mm-hmm. to emergencies. I'm going to do it too because I want to be important. Well, what you what you just said was really interesting. Other side of it is um, empowering your people to yeah. make independent decisions, which another thing. I mean, <laughs> gosh, yes. this guy should like pay me, I guess, because I'm talking about We're his like book a lot. I'm book. literally, yeah, seriously. Um, Jeffrey uh, Pfeiffer, if you're yeah, listening. Come on. Royalties. <laughs> yeah, royalties. <laughs> um, but I think another interesting kind of point you just made is how much that's conditioning people to rely on one person to mm-hmm. be their person. And so we know that having a sense of autonomy and job control and self-efficacy is really good for people's well-being. Mm-hmm. But if you're conditioning that you always have this other person accessible, that's not really enabling that for your team. He talks about how working longer hours, it actually decreases productivity. Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to begin to cite all the the work, but let's just say there there was a lot of studies. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I know to, that's what I said. They're pr- intimidating. To prove this point, yeah. Um, there's literally on page 137 and 138. There's like I want to say five or six bullet points of studies that have happened over time. I don't even know how they do these, but it basically just shows that like okay, if you have a 10 percent increase in overtime, mm-hmm. there's a 2.4 percent decrease in productivity. So this proves the point like okay you work more than the regular hours yeah you actually decrease in productivity if just by working more annual working time exceeds 1925 hours 0.9% decrease in productivity so like there's studies like this that just proves the point that you work longer hours you're not any more effective what do you think about that do you believe it I think I do. <laughs> yeah, I think people believe that they are more productive when they're putting in long hours, yeah. right? That's part of the sort of bargaining or rationalization we make with ourselves about doing the work. Mm-hmm. Is like I'm getting all I'm here a lot. I must be getting a lot done. But in actuality, it's impacting your health and yeah. well-being in ways that maybe aren't as immediately tangible or accessible, but over time I think, right? If you work one really long day every once in a while. Yeah, it's probably, probably fine. Yeah. Probably not as bad. I mean, everything in moderation, right? Sure, yeah. <laughs> but if you, if it's a pattern, I think that's where it starts to be really harmful to yeah. people. And I think like when you, when you compare like, okay, I'm going to work one hour, totally refreshed and a normal, just a normal working hour. And I'm mm-hmm. going to be, you know, productive to a certain degree. And then it's, then it's taken into account like, okay, if you're, if you're burned out and then you're working, you know, one extra hour, what's the productivity of that hour look like compared to the other? Yeah. I think that's, it's, it's kind of hard to compare like how, what if you're working on something totally, like that's why some of these studies are, are hard. Yeah. Like, 
okay, I've worked 12-hour days before. Right. And I'm probably pretty productive in that 12th hour compared to that first hour. It just depends on what you're doing. Yeah, I don't know how they... <laughs> I mean, I really don't... I am not a researcher. I, I don't know how they Poor put, researcher. I know. That's not work I'm... I love it. I like the value of it, but it's not something I... I it's fun to quote these because then we could just like rip it apart and exactly. or believe it. And yeah. I think a lot of us, we, we'd look at stats like these and say, okay, can't work long hours. It right. doesn't work. Yeah. And I think that's that's what I want to poke holes in is like, is working long hours, for one, does it decrease productivity and is it ruining our health? Mm-hmm. I think that's ultimately the, the questions I, I want to answer. I think that the research says yes, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think that's what it points to mm-hmm. is that over time having consistently uh fatigued exhausted workers impacts yep. their health and well-being yep there there's a and we'll wrap up here in a second there was a part on like toxic workplaces mm-hmm. which i thought was fascinating it was basically just saying like people stay in toxic workplaces. Mm-hmm. It destroys their health, their well-being, but yet they stay. Mm-hmm. Why do they stay? Mm-hmm. It becomes like a, a norm. You know, like yeah. a, they're in it so long and the people around them, they just sort of, it becomes ingrained in the culture and they just stay. What kind of impact does that have on their health? Yeah. And what kind of societal issues does that bring up? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the issues he talks about is just economic necessity that people need jobs and feel like they can't go somewhere else it's kind of the devil you know right like would it be better somewhere else or maybe you're just so exhausted and burnt out that you know it's sort of that like sense of hopelessness right that you can't see that it you can't see beyond it you're stuck (laughs) in this hopeless web of would it be better i'm too exhausted to try to make something work somewhere else you feel sort of broken down Mm -hmm. in your ability to even look for something else and then that culture piece is really interesting i think we see that in some you know i'm not going to name companies but you see in companies that there is a culture of this is how we do it and Everybody there is drink the Kool-Aid and there must be something wrong with you if you think, you know, that you shouldn't be expected to sacrifice your family for your work and you shouldn't be expected to have pay equity and, Mm -hmm. you know, all these different things, right? Like it's your fault that you don't think that this is how it's done because clearly this is how it's done, you know? And I think that those cultures are really pervasive and they're hard for people to... To rise up out of it. Yeah, or break into, you know? Like maybe you love your job, but if that's the culture, that takes a big shift. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's funny because I, I... In reading this book, it's so negative in in mm-hmm. a way. It's depressed. We talked about it earlier. It's a little depressing. It's super. Di- it's a downer for sure. And it's like the I think it's the last section or last chapter really talks about okay, where do we go from here? Yeah. Like, what are the employers? What can we do? And I think as I was reading every single chapter, I'm like, okay, here's the issue he's outlined. Here's the impacts culturally. We just need to make a shift, or it's yeah. uh, employers have an opportunity to to rise above this. And to make some changes internally. Yeah. And not only will it be an employer choice, but they might have a more productive workforce. So I, I don't know if you ha- would have all the answers. 
I'm, I'm curious what you think about like what can employers do to really make the shift from, you know, a toxic work environment to uh, not working long hours mm-hmm. to providing health insurance. Like what's yeah. the silver bullet yeah. in all this to, to put a bow on this conversation? I mean, I guess back to some research. So Leslie Hammer is someone at PSU. She's at OHSU and PSU here in Portland and has done a lot of research about that. How do workplaces impact employee health, like from this lens? And so one part is more of that like policy and structural and advocating at a governmental level. But the other thing is just recognizing, so an employer, okay, we're recognizing this is happening in our workplace. We're going to do something different. And he writes about that in the book, certain, you know, influential leaders and companies that had sort of an aha moment for whatever reason. I mean, Patagonia gets like a ton of good PR, right? (laughs) For like, they're basically saying like, we care about our people. We're going to treat them this way. This is how we're going to do it. So policies in the broader kind of community is harder but in your company you know if you're in a position to make policy decisions in your company making sure that those are in place and that they're observed so I was talking to this person I know we're trying to wrap up but I was talking to this person she does research on um, work family conflict that's her job and she was on maternity leave she had a newborn and her boss asked her to be on a conference call and I was like what? Like, how incongruent is that, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So not only do you have to have these policies in place, but people observing them, leaders play a huge role. Says the um, So big. So being able to, like, walk the walk, mm-hmm. encourage people to utilize whatever is in place for their well-being within the company. And I think those are the two sort of, like, you asked about, like, the magic, the silver bullet, right? Like, mm-hmm. Those are the, from an employer standpoint, I think those are the places where you have to start, like having your policies in place internally and then having your leaders observe those policies, model those policies, Mm -hmm. soliciting input from your employees, implementing things based on what you know their needs are, those kinds of things. Because wellness programs historically are like exercise more, eat better. Use your EAP, which is great. Absolutely. I think yeah. all those things should be in place. And like, how do we impact this system? And the only way you can impact the system is to have that like in place on the policy level and then with your leaders implementing those. I 100% agree with that. Yeah. So. Well, this has been a really fun discussion. Again, we talked about the book Dying for a Paycheck written by Jeffrey Pfeffer. Pfeiffer? Pfeiffer. Pfeffer, yeah. Um, there's our royalties. There's the royalties gone. Hey, Jeffrey, send us some money for for, <laughs> for plugging your book. Yeah, for plugging your book nonstop. This, this honestly, it's a. I don't think this is the end of the conversation. I think this this is a it's a big issue right now. I I'm glad we were able to talk about it. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah. yeah, this is a lot of fun. So. Where can people connect with you, learn more about what you're doing? Yes. Uh, plug anything you want. Oh, okay. Um, Go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. So my name is Anna Miners, and I work uh, for a company, Cascade Centers, which is headquartered in Portland, Oregon. We have clients nationwide, but we get to live in the rainy Pacific Northwest. That's and yeah, uh, so... We provide EAP services and wellness services and uh, work with companies to try to integrate 
the things that we're talking about into their workplace, right? So part of what we do is help support people individually for healthy behavior change. But the other piece is how do we support organizations and employers in doing that? Like, what does that look like? How do I do it? How can we do that within our structure and our goals and things like that? So so yeah, I'm actually one of those lucky ones that we were talking about that gets to integrate passion into work and being able to really help people around some of these things we're talking about. Well, thanks for coming on, Anna. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.